HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. After the election happened, and then specifically after the first executive order happened um, that was the supposed to be enacting the first immigration ban, it, it made me really start to think about what was important to me about food and what was what like why I was pursuing food kind of as a career. And for me, it had always been a way to learn about other cultures and engage. And it was an opportunity for me to have access and learn about other people. Part of the reason why I love traveling. And I've always That's Zary like Kamen, the host and creator of Food Without Borders, explaining the inspiration behind her podcast. You'll hear more from Sari in just a few minutes because today's episode is all about borders. This is Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. Turning on the news lately, you're sure to hear about trade wars, Brexit, and Trump's wall. We're intrigued by how borders are built up and torn down. So this week, we've decided to explore culinary fusion, company mergers, cultural identity, and regional competition. We begin with a story about celebrating multiculturalism. Dylan Hoyer tells us about the refugees and immigrants using food to break down assumptions and promote acceptance. In the U.S., where the current political climate is hostile to immigration, recipes have become an unexpected form of resilience. Refugee cookbooks and catering companies are fusing cultural cuisines to create new communities and subvert stereotypes. On HRN series Food Without Borders, Sari Kamen interviews the food industry leaders at the forefront of this movement. One of them is Manal Kahi, the founder of Eat Off Beat, a catering company staffed by refugees who have settled in New York City. Originally from Lebanon, Manal arrived in New York in 2013, and she tells Sari that what she saw on the supermarket shelves changed her trajectory forever. 
I was disappointed with hummus. I wasn't very happy <laughs> with the quality I found in, in grocery stores. It's hard to compare it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't compare well with what I used to have back home. I basically really just called up my grandmother, asked her, hey, how do you make your, your hummus? She gave me her recipe, and everyone around me just loved it. Not long after, Manal started recruiting other household cooks, and Eat Off Beat was born. The catering company now has 30 staff members from 14 different countries. Their kitchen is introducing New Yorkers to traditional recipes from around the world, and it's become a hub for cross-cultural collaboration. Our Nepali chef, for instance, is vegetarian. She always makes momos or dumplings that are vegetarian. Uh, Our Iraqi chef loves to cook with beef. Everything she makes has beef. So she used to make a lot of momos with our Nepali chef. And at some point she told us, oh, you know, last weekend I made a beef version for my kids. Inside you could feel the spices from the Middle East. And on the outside you could feel, again, the the Asian um, flavors, let's say, or, or at least texture. Uh, So it made a very, really nice combination. So that's one of the organic things that happened. Bringing together regionally diverse recipes is increasingly possible in your own home. Leila Mushabak integrated recipes from Cuba, South Korea, Sri Lanka, and almost 60 other countries in the Immigrant Cookbook. She collected the book's recipes and stories from professional chefs, restaurant owners, and food writers. We asked everyone for recipes that kind of resonated with them or, or really, that they really connected to their immigrant experience. And a lot gave family recipes. A lot connected their recipes to childhood memories or some a beloved relative or someone that they learned to cook with. And so these are recipes, they're, they're home cooking. They're, you know, really personal recipes. Breaking down cultural barriers isn't just about what's on our plates. The Immigrant Cookbook donated $25,000 to the ACLU Immigrant Rights Project. Manal is also working on a cookbook for Eat Off Beat to be published in the fall of 2019, and she hopes it will contribute to a greater conversation about immigration and identity. There's a lot that defines a person. It doesn't necessarily have to be why you came here or the way you came here, but also can be you know, the type of gardens you had in front of your house, what you used to cook, what was your inspiration, what your ambitions are. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. We really want people to start seeing our chefs for who they are beyond their status. Find the full interviews about Eat Off Beat and the Immigrant Cookbook, plus many more, on Food Without Borders. Our next story brings us out of the kitchen and into the grocery store. Ariama Long investigates the convergence of food and tech happening inside your local Whole Foods. And just a quick note in the interest of full disclosure, Whole Foods Market has been a supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Register 12. Walking around the Whole Foods Market 365 in downtown Brooklyn, there's high-tech registers at checkout, markdown avocados, and now familiar sky blue Amazon Prime signs toting members save more all over the place. This has become the norm for Whole Foods shoppers. But back in 2017, when Amazon bought Whole Foods for $13.7 billion, it seemed like a surprising partnership. Grocery stores are a tangible exchange of goods for money, and Amazon is all about online commerce. According to Forbes, the company's power move was less about immediate profit and more about converting in-store consumers to online shoppers. Back in October 2017, Jen Liu welcomed Greg Giamona to Tech Bytes to talk about the implications of the Whole Foods Amazon merger. He's a consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. 
you know, we've seen when they've gone after other industries that they're willing sometimes just to take losses in order to gobble up that market share. So I think that's why people are so spooked when it comes to companies like Kroger or Albertsons or these other competitors, you know, even Walmart to a certain extent, because it just means, you know, if Amazon is going to go that hard and, and do that type of thing, I mean, it just means a crushing price war for, for years to come. So I think that's why people are so kind of concerned about the competitors in that space. From the consumer perspective, though, we assume that if we pay less money for the same product, then that's a good deal for us. And it's a, it's a savings in our, in our, you know, individual household budget. But the ripple effect to a price war and driving the prices down, what's the larger consumer public effect? Is that always a good thing? Right. I I mean, I think in the short term, people are going to like lower prices. I mean, they sent, you know, when the deal got announced, they sent me out to stores in New York that weekend to talk to people and see, you know, are they concerned that Bezos is going to ruin this thing that that they love? And I didn't get a lot of that, to be honest. I got people saying, wow, does this mean I can get it delivered now? Or, you know, I'm a prime member. Like, is that going to be good for me? So I think in the short term, you know, people are going to like lower prices. I mean, I think the concern would be, we saw what happened with books. And I mean, I don't think any Anyone is saying that um, grocery stores are going to go away, but you do wonder in 10 years, does Amazon sort of gobble up the market share and you see sort of maybe some local and regional stores go out of business and then is the playbook then to kind of bring bring the prices back up and now, you know, the, the local grocery store that I loved is gone and that's the only game in town. I have to drive 10 miles to a Walmart or, or get it delivered through Amazon. Prices are about to go up, just not for the exact reason Giamona outlined. In February 2019, Forbes reported that price hikes were set to hit Whole Foods shelves as packaged goods companies planned to pass along their own increases. Another thing to keep your eye on? Just this month, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced a regulatory plan that would break up some of the most massive tech companies. That would include rolling back the Amazon Whole Foods merger. And at the same time, Amazon has announced its own plan to open up new grocery stores separate from Whole Foods. If you want to learn more, listen to the episode 115 of Tech Bites. More Meet and 3 after this. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Mon, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Our next story tackles blurry culinary borders. Nina Medvinskaya explores the fine line differentiating cuisines in the post-Soviet landscape. When the Soviet Union crumbled, new borders emerged throughout Eastern Europe. 
And although some Soviet influence remains to this day, individual countries have reclaimed narratives surrounding their regional cuisines. In venturing closer towards my own Slavic food roots, I visited Veselka, a round-the-clock, no-frills Ukrainian diner embedded in the heart of New York City's East Village. The Soviet Union, when it was becoming itself, was picking and choosing all the best foods from all the different republics, the different cultures, and creating this Soviet identity, which became the Russian identity. And because of the Soviet Union, people had this identity as being one whole people, which kind of discredited some people's cultural identities through their food. Veselka's veteran chef and consultant, Olesia Lu, became interested in Slavic cooking when studying at an international culinary school. She noticed that Ukrainian food was absent from her curriculum, and that Russian fare was the one-fit-all marker for Slavic cuisine. A cuisine which has much to boast about, with dishes such as galupci, or meat-stuffed cabbage, rasolnik, also known as pickle soup, haledets, a scrumptious meat jello, and borscht, the popular beet soup. After the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. But there's beautiful Ukrainian food that's very specific that was incorporated into other Soviet cultures' food. There's beautiful Russian food, like the beautiful like imperial tables that they would create. And that's homage to Russian identity. And Russian tables are very similar to Ukrainian tables in the fact that we're circular. We don't have a first course, a second course, a third course. When we sit down to eat, we have multiple dishes on our table. Although Veselka prides itself on serving specifically Ukrainian food, both Alesia and the diner's owner acknowledge that it's difficult to identify the border between what is Ukrainian and what is not within the Slavic cuisine. My name's Tom Burchard. I've been the owner of Veselka for 50 years now. I think I have a unique perspective on our cuisine at Veselka because I'm not Ukrainian, I'm not Polish, I'm not Russian. I'm Ukrainian by persuasion. I'm not of Ukrainian persuasion. Tom grew up in southern New Jersey and wound up at Veselka when he started working for his father-in-law, the restaurant's founder. Throughout his tenure, he has witnessed much discrepancy over what exactly makes a dish authentically Ukrainian or Russian or Polish. I've heard a lot of debates over what real Ukrainian or Russian or Polish food is. I get comments like this should have tomato sauce, or it's very good, but it should have more meat or less meat, or it should be smaller, or it should be bigger. And somebody once said to me, there are as many versions of borscht as there are Jewish grandmas in the world. And I'm always surprised how personally and emotionally people make a connection to our food. It has historical significance to them and strong memories. And although, admittedly, the differences between Slavic dishes are incredibly nuanced, it's those subtle idiosyncrasies that express a dish's origins. One of the foods that experienced a shared identity in the Soviet Union was the dumpling. And even across different regions of Ukraine, this dumpling, called varenik, took on different forms. If you go to eastern Ukraine and you're in Donetsk and you ask for varenik, you get just potato, salt, and pepper. But if you ask for that same varenik in the west and in, in a city like Lviv, yours is going to have like caramelized onions inside and farmer's cheese and sometimes like a hard 
type cheddar cheese. It means the same exact thing. It's just a different region. And since Russia borders with eastern Ukraine, the Russian varenik resembles eastern Ukraine's potato dumpling rather than the western region's cheese-filled version. But one Slavic country in particular strove to claim the varenik distinctly as its own, albeit under a different name. Poles say that pierogies are our things. We brought them here to the United States, which I actually think they did because there was a huge Polish prevalence in this country. But that being said, if you look it up, St. Kashmir visited Ukraine and he was introduced to the Varanik and then he brought it back to Poland. And if you look at some Polish iconography, he's holding a dumpling in some of the older ones. So does that deny the Poles that they don't make their own pierogies? I I can't say that. You know, they've embraced it in their own way. Yet despite embracing the shared nature and vague boundaries of Slavic food, Alesia and Tom still insist that Veselka specifically serves Ukrainian food. In part, it's because it serves dishes made with historically Ukrainian ingredients, such as beets using original Ukrainian recipes. What makes it Ukrainian is the original owners, who was Tom Burchard's father-in-law, was Ukrainian. And he created a Ukrainian restaurant. We also honor the tradition of Ukrainian hospitality. Everybody is welcome at Veselka. Amidst all this culinary soul-searching, one thing has become most salient— When it comes to Slavic cuisine, it's best not to grant concrete ownership to any one country for any one dish. And considering today's Eastern European political climate, maybe that's for the best. There's so many things that people can argue about. If they can share food, I think that's a better way of looking at things. And I would not want to deny anybody their food culture. It's the people who make it and give it their name. It is theirs. For our last story, come with me to a border known more for a party atmosphere than regional conflict. Except for one weekend a year, when hundreds of people line up to hurl unappetizing projectiles across state lines. So we toss fish, which is mullet. That is a native fish to the area. You'll see them jumping out of the water all the time if you're boating around our waterways. But you stand in a 10-foot circle and we stand on the Florida side and you toss a fish as far as you can towards Alabama. That's Jennifer Parnell describing the mullet toss that takes place every year at the Florabama. Florabama is basically a historic beach bar honky-tonk. So it's on the state line where Orange Beach, Alabama meets Perdido Key, Florida. And we sit right on the Gulf of Mexico. So we have beautiful white sandy beaches out behind our bar. As crazy as this sounds, the mullet toss has a storied history. This is our 34th mullet toss, and it started because the season has pretty much been Memorial Day to Labor Day, but back in the day, they were trying to think of events that could be in the shoulder seasons to keep people coming to the area, to keep all the businesses in business, and Joe Gilchrist had been out west with his friend Jimmy Lewis, and they had done this um, contest where they threw cow chips, which if you look that up, that's interesting all in itself. (laughs) And so they were drinking one day and said, let's do something similar at Floribama that is more to this area. And so they thought about throwing fish. So they just called their friends, got as many people as they could, took some coolers down to the beach, and that's how it started. The overall vibe at the mullet toss is pretty laid back, but that doesn't mean the competition isn't dead serious. It's all about seeing who can toss their fish the farthest. It's basically a bunch of people under 10 by 10 tents tailgating on the beach, really. I mean, they're just 
dancing, listening to music, you know, having some drinks, sitting, enjoying in the sun. Um, but then you go to the toss area and you fill out your card, which basically just has your information on it. And you pay $15, which that money goes to local charities in our community. And you get a free t-shirt. Then you get in line to toss your fish. And the rules are when you walk up to get in the 10 foot circle to toss your fish, there are coolers on either side that have the mullet in there and you have to grab your own fish and you can't put it in the sand to get a better grip on it. You just have to pull it straight out of the cooler and then you can throw it any way you want. But um, a lot of people will fold it in half and sort of throw it like a football. Some people do it like a discus throw where they sort of hold it out and spin around. Some people throw it underhanded and it's all ages too. So you can have little kids, I mean, from one or two years old, all the way up to 90 plus throwing it. So that may dictate how they're going to throw as well. And then after you throw the fish, you got to run and go pick up your own fish and bring it back and throw it in the cooler. And for those concerned about what happens to the mullet after the competition's over? We um, actually donate them to the local zoo. So any ones that we can still donate, we take them to the local zoo and then they feed them to the animals there that eat fish. If you think you have what it takes to be a champion mullet tosser, you can head down to the Florabama for this year's event. It takes place on April 26th, 27th, and 28th. 2019. Head to Floribama.com for more details. Well, that's our show. Special thanks this week to Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, and Nina Medvinskaya for their reporting. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Nina Medvinskaya. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson with help from Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.